If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams. So they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we're talking about the medieval noblewoman Eleanor de Montfort, the crisis of 1265, and what exactly went on in an aristocratic household in the 13th century. Our content director, David Musgrove, called Professor Louise Wilkinson to find out more. I'm joined today by Louise Wilkinson, who is Professor of Medieval Studies at the University of Lincoln. She's just started uh, work there. She was at Canterbury for that. And the household role of Eleanor de Montfort, Countess of Leicester and Pembroke, 1265, is the latest publication 
of the Pipe Roll Society, and Louise is the editor and translator of that volume. That's what we're going to be discussing today. Now, if that sounds a little bit dry, a little bit drier than our usual fare, bear with us because it's going to be really interesting and there is some fascinating stuff in it. And I happen to know that Louise is a real expert on this, so um, so stick with us. So, Louise, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the History Extra podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. And you're about to find out just how interesting Eleanor is. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so first question then, uh, straight on from that is, uh, who was Eleanor de Montfort? Well, she was actually one of the most important women in 13th century England. She was a major political player. She was the youngest daughter of King John by his wife, Isabella of Angoulême. And she was also the sister of one of our longest reigning medieval monarchs, King Henry III who reigned over England between 1216 and 1272. Beyond that, she was also married to a tremendously important individual, her second husband, Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester. And Simon is a very interesting figure in his own right because he actually was involved in leading what's widely considered to be England's first revolution against the crown in 1258. He was also involved with his wife in helping to start a major civil war in England against Henry III. And so Eleanor was really at the heart of a tremendously turbulent political period. Right. OK, so that's covered off a little bit of the title of the volume, the Eleanor de Montfort bit. What is a household role? So a household role is basically a great role of parchment, so sort of animal skin on which are recorded the day-to-day expenses of a household, a domestic establishment, a home. And what is a pipe roll? So this was published by the Pipe Roll Society. Are they one and the same things? A pipe roll is actually something rather different. It's a different type of financial account. Um, A pipe roll actually records the financial accounts for each year of the English crown. Um, So we have pipe rolls surviving in England from between 11, well, the earliest is one that survives in four is from 1130. And then we have a sort of nearly continuous run with a few breaks here and there um, down to 1300. And they just tell us about crown revenue. So they're quite different from a household roll. So in a pipe roll, you'd have sheriffs from individual counties having come to the exchequer and rendered account for debts owed to the crown and for revenues that had come into the crown in the different localities. A household roll is really just a piece of domestic accounting. So have you broken all rules of the Pipe Roll Society by publishing this household role within its, uh, within its publication? No, because the Pipe Roll Society is a tremendously open-minded society and we have quite a wide remit. Um, so we're allowed to publish all sorts of records from the 12th, 13th and now 14th centuries, provided they sort of fit with the society's interests. And my household role is an account role, so it ties in quite nicely with the society's interest in revenues. But we have also in the past published things like volumes of charters, deeds relating to property, and that sort of thing as well. Okay, so you're not going to be thrown out of the society for uh, for doing Hopefully not, hopefully not. I have been a member for a very, very long time and on council for a very long time. But it is actually excellent value for money, I should just say, because it's only £10 a year for UK subscribers. And you get a lovely volume each year. Um, of Latin records, um, and increasingly they are now being published as well in English translation. 
So, and they always have lovely introductions as well. Uh, yeah, I, I, I noticed that and I've, I've joined because I thought it was such good value. So, uh, so I encourage all History Extra um, listeners to, to sign up and, uh, and, and get an get a interesting document for your money. Right, so is this a particularly unusual survival, this household role? It is a very, very special survival. Um, we only have really a dozen or so other household accounts surviving in England um, from before 1250. So it's a very, very important document. What's lovely about it as well is that it is an insight into the life of an English princess through her household accounting system and her servants. And it also concerns one of the most important years in English history, which is 1265, which is when the Montfort regime, headed by Earl Simon de Montfort and Countess Eleanor, his wife, came tumbling down. And Henry III was restored to power after a great battle was fought at a place called Evesham in August. Um, and so presumably there would have been uh, roles for the other years um, as well, but they, they haven't come down to us, they haven't survived. Is it just this one? No, this is an isolated survival and it's quite an odd one. Um, it probably went into exile with Eleanor when she left England in October 1265 after the royalists regained control of the country. And it probably went with her into the French nunnery into which she retired um, and came to light at the time of around the French Revolution, and then passed, we think, into private hands and was happily purchased by the good old British Museum, hurrah, in the 19th century. Um, so it's really rather special. It's something that Countess Eleanor took with her into exile at the end of a horrible, horrible time for her. And and just physically, as a document, is it um, is it unwieldy to, to, to study? No, it's the most small, beautiful, perfectly formed parchment roll. Um, it's only 13 membranes long, so 13 sort of pieces of parchment long, stitched together end to end. And it's in very, very good shape in the British Library, I have to say. It's absolutely exquisite. And all in medieval Latin, presumably? Yes, all in heavily abbreviated medieval Latin. <laughs> um, you have a tremendous admiration for the scribes and clerks who wrote up these roles. And actually, sometimes in Eleanor's role, they mention their names. So we say, so Udo began this bit and then Christopher wrote another bit. Um, so not written in the most friendly of languages. And sometimes you could see the clerks almost grappling for words. And so here and there, they sort of insert the odd word in Middle English or a French loan word. You know, normally when it's a fish or something being mentioned and they're just not quite sure what the right word would be in Latin. So it's quite fun, really. It's got all sorts of things in it. OK, now it's got a uh, two things. In it. It's got a diet account, account and a wardrobe journal. What, what what does that mean, those two things? So on the front of the roll, there's basically a diet account, which is a day-to-day -day account. And that tells us about the different types of food and drink consumed by the Countess's household on each individual day, which is quite fun. It also tells us if the Countess is in residence with the household, she normally is. And also it gives us the name of the sort of key visitors who were with her on each day. Um, and she entertained abbots, prioresses, great lords and ladies, local knights, all sorts of people. Um, on the reverse of the row, on the back, um, you have a different account entirely, which is quite fun. It's called a wardrobe journal. 
And it just contains all sorts of random pieces of information. It's fascinating. So there are accounts for the purchase of cloth and clothing, messengers' accounts, um, accounts for expenses incurred by all sorts of officials, payments for archers, and payments for the transfer of engines um, between castles. There's one or two of those. Payments to engineers involved in sort of fortifications, presumably all sorts of lovely business. There's even a nice payment for a cat who has purchased the Odium, presumably to help keep the mice down um, when the Countess lived for a period at Odium Castle in Hampshire. So, And there's also another payment for a mouse catcher at Dover, which I rather like, where vermin was also clearly a problem. We, we may come back to animals in a bit. So so wardrobe uh, doesn't have the same meaning as, as we have today of a cupboard where you keep your clothes in there. Well, there is some relevance there because there are sort of lots of references to cloth and clothing being purchased. So hose and shoes and robes, those sorts of things. But the wardrobe in this period also functioned really as a department of the household. And so you do get at this stage all this other business um, creeping into its account. It's sort of an, in an embryonic state, which is rather fun, I think. Okay, so uh, the household then. So this is the the household role of Eleanor de Montfort. What's what is the household? How many people are we talking here, and, and what sort of people are involved? Well, we're talking about a great aristocratic household, the type that resided most usually in this period in castles. So we're talking about the Countess and her immediate family, those who are with her. See, she had six children. Um, most of them were grown up in 1265, but she still had a little daughter called Eleanor living with her. She also had a body of sort of personal attendants, so lady attendants who are called damsels in her role. So we know the names of Christina and Horwies who served her. She had a laundress called Petronilla, who also served her and received a livery. Um, she also um, had a couple of nurses who seem to have been sort of female caregivers for younger members of the household. And she also had a whole body of male servants for the different departments of her household, so for the kitchen and so on. Um, and also some very senior figures who served in her own sort of personal chamber um, and helped to oversee household affairs. So it was quite a sort of complex organisation and quite a large one. So on average, they're probably just over... 200 or so people in attendance. But because she was constantly visited by people, she was a major sort of political hostess. The numbers of her household actually fluctuated tremendously. So sometimes there might be just a little more than 100 people with her, sometimes as many as 700. Um, so can you imagine the logistics of catering for up to 700 visitors? It must have been a little challenging, to say the least. Um and, and you mentioned earlier that her children are mostly grown up. So how old was Eleanor in 1265, roughly? Oh, well, she was probably born in around about 1216, probably just after John's death. Um, so she was sort of in sort of well advanced into middle age, to put it politely. Okay. <laughs> and, just, and, and you mentioned the, the scribes and how they sometimes are, sort of are named in the document do we, do we ever see she never writes in this in this document presumably. no she doesn't write in this document there's a bit of debate about sort of whether aristocratic women wrote in this period um, in slightly later periods we have signatures so we know they could sign their names but it would have been perhaps more sort of appropriate for a woman of her rank a royal princess actually to dictate her letters to scribes 
um, to have people do that work for her. And I, she wouldn't have done anything so menial, I don't think, as to compile her own accounts. She might have checked them over. Um, we know of other princesses who are known to have sort of annotated their accounts, including um, Louis IX's sister in France. She sort of read things through and annotated them. Um, but Eleanor probably wouldn't have been involved in writing this role, but she might have just checked them over to have a quick check and make sure that all her finances were in order. Mm. But so we never hear her voice specifically in this role. There's never any sort no, of, you know, she don't. said this or anything like that. No, no, no. We don't hear her voice directly. Okay, so um, so we've got loads of really good social history by the sounds of things. So uh, the, the diet account is going to tell us a lot about eating habits um, uh, and and the diet in in a, a, a princely a princessly household. So what sort of things do we do we learn? Well, we learn that bread was one of the great staples of her diet, as it was in other great households in this period. Um, and different grades of bread were probably served to different sort of tiers of people within the household. So Eleanor would have eaten particularly fine white bread, presumably. And then those lower down would have had much sort of more dubious breads to consume. Um, we also learned that actually ale was brewed and purchased in vast quantities. It was much safer, of course, to drink ale than water in the Middle Ages, as the water was untreated. And vast quantities of wine were also purchased. Um, and Eleanor and her sort of more elite members of her household seem to have drunk quite a lot of wine. And they also dispatched it as gifts to neighbouring dignitaries, um, to, to the Prioress of Amesbury, people like that. Um, they would send a few cesters of wine. Um, she drank red and white wine, um, interestingly. Um, there are also some quite amusing references along the way to the quality of the wine on different occasions. And um, on one occasion, occasion, I think the household is referred to drinking the good wine and some of the other. So you can infer <laughs> what the other was like, perhaps a little bit vinegary if it was red. So... <laughs> So should we imagine this as being a particularly boozy household or was it just, as you said, because, you know, it was unsafe to drink, uh, drink, drink water? Well, I think people just drank what we would now consider to be alcoholic drinks really as a staple of their diet um, because it was just, I suppose, perceived as being better for you than perhaps the water. Um, it wasn't a particularly boozy household. If you look at sort of monasteries in this period, you know, they're consuming ale, the monks there, and so on and so forth. Um, in terms of actually sort of food, um, some of the things that were served up don't look altogether different from what we actually eat today. Um, so, for example, she ate lots of sort of mutton and pork and chickens, um, those sorts of things, some beef. Um, she also ate a phenomenal amount of fish, um, because fish was served usually on Fridays and Saturdays in her household, um, and usually as well on many Wednesdays. Um, you weren't meant to eat meat on those days in the Christian calendar. And one of the things that emerges from her role is actually that during Lent, when you weren't meant to eat meat at all, vast quantities of herrings were eaten. So can you imagine a household consuming between 400 and 1,700 herrings a day between late February and early April. Can you imagine the smell in the kitchens? You know, when all you had really was sort of salt um, to help preserve things. Let's hope they were quite fresh. 
Um, and you also get all sorts of lovely types of fish being consumed on feast days um, when they had to still observe the sort of abstinence from meat. Um, so you get lovely references to bass, bream, cod, ling, conger eels, hake, mackerel, mullet, salmon, and pike was served up actually on special occasions. It was incredibly expensive pike, a freshwater fish. Um, it was almost like the sort of medieval equivalent of having venison um, in the fish world, which really surprised me when I first started looking at this because um, I hadn't thought of pike, which are now quite sort of large and ugly fishes, aren't, fish, aren't they? Um, being sort of regarded as something that was very good and very expensive and exquisite to have um, as a foodstuff. Um, one of the things that also just makes me laugh about the household role is that there are remarkably few vegetables mentioned in the role. As a mother of a daughter who's a vegetarian and another daughter who actually is quite resistant to vegetables, um, I think she would have quite liked life in Eleanor's household because we see purchases of peas and beans and onions, but not much else. Um, <laughs> So, yes, it must have been an incredibly meat and fish intensive diet, really. Um, but Eleanor did sort of buy things in, lovely spices on bulk, which her cooks would have used to enliven dishes. So spices like cumin, saffron, those sorts of things. Um, but it would be nice to know exactly what dishes were served. We always get the ingredients listed in the diet accounts, but not the end product. Um, uh so um, so maybe not uh, the healthiest diets, though, by the sound of things, or at least not in our modern sense. No, perhaps not the healthiest of diets. Sometimes you do look at these and you think, how did people actually survive for as long as they did, those who lived to a reasonable age, you know? No, not terribly healthy. Um, what's also quite fun is in the household role, there are some nice sort of sweet products that are purchased. So sometimes, you know, sugar's purchased for consumption by the household. Sometimes gingerbread, which is still a favourite of mine today. Um, so there are all sorts of, sort of lovely things in there. Lots of sort of dried fruit as well. Raisins seem to have been very popular with Eleanor's brother, Richard of Cornwall. Um, he was a captive at Wallingford Castle because he'd sided with Henry III. But Eleanor still sent him nice sort of gifts of almonds and rice and raisins to help sort of enliven his diet in captivity. So there's lots of good fun stuff in the diet account. Um, so I was I was talking to uh, Ellie Woodacre um, uh, recently about um, uh, medieval queens for this uh, for this very podcast, and she was telling me that Elizabeth of York had a particular uh, um, penchant for apples. Apparently, she there's there's like large numbers of apples in her in, in her account rolls. Do we see much in the way by way of apples and other fruits? No, we don't. Um, that was the thing that struck me, actually. There are lots of pears that are purchased, but they're usually accounted for under the stables or the marshalsea. Um, so pears are purchased near Canterbury, which is still famous for its orchards today. Um, there's also a reference to some cherries that are purchased, but we don't see vast quantities of fruit, um, which is something that quite sort of surprised me, actually, because you'd expect to see that, wouldn't you, today in the summer months? Um so, but they, they, they're just not listed in the accounts as coming from stock or being purchased at all. Okay, so um, can we see uh, any difference between the eating habits and the diet of, uh, of Eleanor's immediate household and the, and the upper echelons of that and what perhaps the, the hoi polloi down below were, were, were being fed? 
Well, it's a little tricky to trace in the household role, but there is a sense that the ale was probably consumed more often by the lower tiers of the household. And we know that cider was sometimes given to the paupers whom Eleanor fed. Um, and we also know that pottage was sometimes given to them too, sort of like a sort of vegetable soupy thing. Um, and sometimes different grades of wine were dished out. So there's a rather sort of ominous reference towards the sort of latter part of the role to bastard wine, which is actually a very sweet wine, which seems to have been given to the lower tiers of the household rather than the finer wine. Um, so we do get some sort of sense of gradations of rank. Um, and they also had lots of herrings as well. <laughs> so, yes. Okay, so everyone's eating herrings and not much and not much fruit. Um, okay, um, what about uh, sort of the kitchen equipment and utensils that we use? Do we is that recorded in in the role very much? We do. We get a sense actually of serving dishes. So we get references to lots of bowls that were purchased, earthenware pots, dishes, cups. Um, we also get references to table linen and tablecloths, so perhaps similar to those that we see in medieval manuscripts covering great tables um, in this period. There's also a rather lovely reference to some silver spoons um, that belong to the Countess, um, which actually had to be repaired. So they did this by melting down eight silver pennies <laughs> and then sort of obviously using them on the spoons. And we also get some sense of furnishings as well, which I rather like. So they're references to bound chests, presumably to sort of be used for security purposes. I think one stored the Countess's silver pots. And we also get references to things like floor coverings, so rushes for the chamber and perhaps stewing herbs to help make the floor smell a bit nicer um, in the chamber or the hall, somewhere like that. Okay, so we're getting a real sense of of what was what what life was like there through um through through these records. Now, one of the interesting things about uh, about her household and all, all households, great households at the time, was that they were moving around a lot. Um, uh, how far can we see that in the role and and sort of what's what's the what's the route of the journey that she's taking in twelve sixty five? So in 1265, Eleanor seems to have begun the year at Wallingford Castle, which had formerly belonged to her now captive brother, Richard of Cornwall. And then she moved from Wallingford to Odium, which was actually a favourite personal residence of hers um, in sort of the February period. And Odium's really rather lovely. If you go there today, you'll see the remains of a rather beautiful octagonal stone keep um, it had been a royal hunting lodge um, of her father's, King John. And it is somewhere that we know from earlier records that she spent quite a lot of time raising her family, presumably, when they were younger. She then moved on at rather high speed in June um, because she received news that Henry III's eldest son, the Lord Edward, had escaped from Montfortian captivity in the Welsh marches to Porchester Castle on the south coast, um, she actually travelled over 40 miles in a day between the two residences because she was scared of what was going to happen in the aftermath of the Lord Edward's escape. So she moved to Porchester, which is a great coastal fortress um, in Hampshire and was presumably much more secure than her little hunting lodge at Odium. And then from Porchester, she travelled on again um, just 
11, 12 days later, she began another journey to the great, great fortress in the southeast of England that was Dover Castle in this period. Um, and she travelled there between the 12th and 15th of June and covered about 30 miles in a day. So it's quite a fast journey, actually, for a household and suggests something of a flight across England, um, just in case the royalists resurged successfully in England in the aftermath of the Lord Edward's escape. And Dover was a very, very impressive castle in this period. It had undergone major building works with Henry III. He'd spent around £8,000 on it, which was a vast, vast sum of money. It had a lovely keep, which you can still see today, often doubles for the Tower of London in films. Um, it had been built by Henry II. It had an amazing inner bailey, and Henry III had made substantial improvements, actually, to the outer bailey, and he'd built some important new gatehouses as well. Dover was tremendously important strategically, of course, because it looked out over the Straits of Dover, across the English Channel. So it was a very good point for Eleanor, to be in residence. It was very secure and she could also safeguard access to England via the port of Dover from France in case there was any danger um, of royalists coming across the channel as well. So and so these, these great houses and castles that she moved between, um, they weren't all her properties? Well, Odium was hers. Porchester was actually held by Simon Jr., one of her younger sons. He was its constables, constable. And Dover was held by Henry, her eldest son, as its constable. Dover was, of course, a royal castle. Um, so she sort of began, if you like, at Wallingford, which had been taken over from Richard of Cornwall, moved to Odium, her own residence, where she had quite a leisurely springtime existence. And then when the heat got turned on, after the Lord Edward escaped, she moved to Porchester, which was a much more sort of greater defensive structure, and then on to Dover, which was really the creme de la creme of royal castles in this period. A brilliant, brilliant, impressive structure. It still is today. It's one of my personal favourite English castles. Mm, it's a great castle. Um, so you mentioned that uh, you can sort of see uh, them moving quite fast at certain times and perhaps um, uh, in, in a bit of a rush. Um, what, what can we learn from the from the role about uh, horses and, you know, riding and, and stabling and that sort of thing? There must be lots of information uh, of that nature. Well, the diet account has a sort of little list at the end of each day of expenses incurred by the stables, essentially, by the marshalsea. So we're able to know pretty much for every day mentioned on the roll the number of horses who were then in residence with Eleanor. And it's quite useful um, for tracking when sort of great visitors come and the numbers in which they come to Odium as well. Um, so when she was at Odium, for example, the numbers of horses in her stable ranged from 12, when it was very quiet, to 334, when she had a whole host of visitors, um, including her husband, Earl Simon, who was often resident elsewhere in England in this period due to the military situation, and also the Lord Edward before he escaped um, from Montfortian clutches. Um, the accounts also tell us what the horses were fed, um, very familiar to what we see today, hay and oats. Um, in the summer, they also purchase fresh green fodder for them, freshly mown grass. 
And we're also able to see lots of information about the different types of horses that served her household actually on the back of the roll. So we know, for example, that the Countess um, and her women rode on palfreys, which were rather fine horses. And then we also see accounts relating to poor pack horses, sumpters, cart horses as well. And we also see a whole list of purchases and repairs made to saddles, to tack, to harnesses. Um, so it's just really quite fascinating. Sometimes we even have lists of different types of horses in the roll and their colour. So you'll encounter an iron grey horse who's sent um, to serve with one of Eleanor's sons. Um, it's just a super, super resource, really. Okay. And what about uh, other animals? You mentioned the uh, the cats for the for the vermin earlier. What do, do we see? Do we see much by way of uh, information about other animals in the room? Well, what we have to understand is in this period, aristocratic households engaged heavily in hunting, and they hunted using horses, but also using dogs. So we actually find quite significant entries in the household role um, to expenses incurred by the keepers of different types of hunting dog. So Eleanor herself had a keeper of her greyhounds and she had a pack of greyhounds and she also looked after the hunting dogs of her sons as well. Um, so there's quite a lot of information on dogs in the role as well. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Um, so one of my favourite um, figures in Enna's role is this lovely little kitchen hand called Garbage, um, which meant offal or kitchen waste in Middle English. Um, and that was presumably his nickname and how he was known in the household um, until he left Eleanor's service in July, actually. But poor little chap, imagining being given that name. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. So, so we kind of, you kind of have this sense that uh, that the uh, upper echelons of society they basically kind of they spend all their time hunting, or at least it seems to be the main passion for a lot of them. Um, do, what else were they doing? Can we see can we see other things that they're doing day to day? Well, I think in this period, Eleanor was tremendously important in actually just entertaining people and in buttressing her family's political position. So she constantly had this great stream of visitors to her household whom she entertained with feasts, 
when she made her great sort of flight or progress across the south during the summer of 1265, moving from Porchester to Dover. She entertained the burgesses of places like Winchelsea, um, a very important sink port, which was loyal to the Montfortians and gave them a splendid feast. Um, she was quite a canny political operator. She also seems to have functioned in a way that was similar to a relay station for her family as well. She received constant, constant streams of messengers coming in from her sons, from her associates in the Montfortian regime. And she also sent out messages herself and communicated regularly with her husband, her sons, um, the Bishop of Lincoln, all sorts of, sort of leading figures, the Countesses of Lincoln and Gloucester and Oxford. Um, she really was a sort of important communications hub. And we also get a sense that she sort of might have also engaged in the nicest of pastimes in life when she had a moment. Um, so we know, for example, that she commissioned a rather fine prayer book for her little daughter, Eleanor, who was probably just about seven at the time. She might have used it to help her to read. Um, there are also references to silk being purchased, perhaps for embroidery and those sorts of things, really. OK. Now, um, what about clothing? Does the, do the roles inform us about uh, what people are wearing? Yes, they do. So there are lots and lots of references to purchases of all sorts of different types of cloth, often from very fine London merchants like Luke of Luca, um, for use by the Countess, her daughter, her clerical son, Amory, who was a member of the church, and also for Richard of Cornwall, one of her sort of favourite siblings as well. And so we sort of have references to robes being purchased, hoods. Um, one of my favourite references is actually to um, a headdress that was decorated with 25 gilded stars, which was sort of especially commissioned for her daughter, the young Eleanor. Can you imagine a little seven-year-old running around in a splendid headdress decorated with stars? I think that's rather a lovely entry. And we also find gold brooches being purchased to be given as gifts. And also a rather fine silk girdle was purchased as well um, for Amory, Eleanor's son. And the types of cloths we encounter are generally pretty fine cloths. So scarlet cloths, which were very, very sort of deluxe. Um, and we also have references to linen clothing. Um, sometimes furs were purchased to trim robes. Um, so there's a reference to a miniver fur being purchased and also squirrel fur. Um, we have to remember they had a different attitude towards the use of fur to that which um, we often have today in this period. They weren't quite so aware of animal rights. Mm. Hmm. So all the all the tailoring and uh, dressmaking would have been going on in situ, presumably. I think a lot of it actually was. Yes, she had Hick the tailor in her employment, and she seems to have had her own tailoring department. Um, sometimes I think there were sort of special pieces of work that needed to be sent elsewhere. Um, so she actually sent some of her gowns to London for reshearing. So basically, the top layer of the cloth would have been sheared off you know, where it had bobbled or got a bit sort of unpleasant and it would have restored the cloth to its original rather fine state. I think I could do with a re-searing service in my household today. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what about, um, what about what the, the rest of the household were wearing? Are there records of sort of her buying clothes for, for her underlings or were people expected to just sort themselves out? Yes, very often her servants received what we call sort of liveries of clothes. So hose, 
for example, so leg coverings, um, robes sometimes, and also shoes, lots and lots of shoes. One of the things that sort of impressed itself upon me was just how often shoes seem to have worn out. Actually, lots of shoes are purchased in the role. Um, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and we also sort of see references to some incredibly lowly members of the household, and they've got lovely, lovely names that it's just worth mentioning. Um, so one of my favourite um, figures in Enda's role is this lovely little kitchen hand called Garbage, um, which meant offal or kitchen waste in Middle English. Um, and that was presumably his nickname and how he was known in the household um, until he left Eleanor's service in July, actually. But poor little chap, imagining being given that name. Um, and we also have some lovely names of messengers as well in this period. So there's one messenger who's called Go With Haste, which is quite a nice nickname for a messenger. <laughs> um, there's another messenger who travelled quite regularly between um, Eleanor and her husband. He was called Slingaway. And we encountered other messengers called Wilcock and Bollett. So you encounter all sorts of walks of life in the role. It's just great fun. So presumably those names are, uh, well, a little bit demeaning, pejorative, I guess? Or I think some of them were. You do feel quite sorry for them. <laughs> um, I think people were just given sort of nicknames. I, I, I do feel particularly sorry for Garbage, actually. And you just hope that he went on to have a nicer life and got another nickname or didn't get a nickname elsewhere, <laughs> really, after he left her service. Um, but you also get sort of more usual names like sort of Robin Picard and and so on. Yeah. But it doesn't give a sense necessarily of, uh, of Eleanor and uh, being maybe particularly interested in in these in the in the lower orders of her servants or is that uh, would that be stretching no i think it would have been actually quite a hierarchical household so i think it would have been actually the men and women of her chamber um who would have actually sort of dealt with the lower levels of official and you sometimes see sort of a damsel making a payment on the countess's behalf and so on so i mean we do get a sense from other sort of texts that survive from this period, so treaties, textbooks, if you like, on estate and household management. We get a sense from those works, actually, of how sort of hierarchically arranged the great households were. And there were very clear tiers of officials. Um, so there were the men who ran the household, then there were other tiers down in charge of different departments. And then you sort of work your way down to the lowliest kitchen boy, all the smallest grooms in the stables, really. Mm. Okay, so I, I guess poor little garbage probably wouldn't have come into contact with the countess very I much. I doubt it very yeah. much. I think he probably would have been encouraged to keep out of her way. What about uh, bathing and personal grooming? Uh, can we see much of that in the role? Well, we do know that money was spent on bars at Odium, which I find strangely reassuring for this period of history. Um, bathing wasn't something that was undertaken necessarily all that often I think King John was regarded as quite clean because he was meant to have bathed once a month or so um, Eleanor's father that is um, Eleanor herself it's difficult to know when she had a bath but we do know that money was spent on baths on at least two occasions for her during 1265 and presumably the baths in question were these great big wooden barrels that you see um, in medieval manuscripts bound with great big iron rings, so rather different to our modern contraptions. There are also references to chamber pots as well in the role, 
um, which I also find sort of reassuring, um, <laughs> given the rather poor sanitary conditions in most English castles um, in this period. And moving on to that then, uh, sanitary conditions uh, lend themselves to, to um, ill health. Do we see much of medicine, health, well-being, that sort of thing? Well, there are references to herbs that you sort of suspect were being purchased sometimes for medicinal purposes, like anise and fennel. Um, fennel, um, in one's sort of late 12th century work, was described as being a herb that could bring happiness if you ate it raw, so it would improve your mood, um, which I rather like. Um, but we also see references to payments for barbers who undertook a lot of sort of medical treatment work in this period. So we know, for example, that one of Emma's one of Eleanor's damsels was actually visited by a barber on two occasions when she was at Odium. So he came to bleed her, presumably for some sort of medical ailment, um, which makes you think a bit actually of horrible histories. <laughs> yes, it does a bit, doesn't it? OK, so we, we've talked a bit about uh, all the sorts of things that are recorded. Can uh, Presumably there are uh, numbers attributed to all these things so she can see how much money is being spent. So what, what are the main expenses that, uh, that, were, um, that were spent in the role? Well, the main expenditures really on foodstuffs, those sorts of things. Um, what's also sort of quite interesting is that she also purchased very large quantities of wax from time to time. Um, you wouldn't necessarily think of buying large quantities of wax today, but we think that wax was probably used for candles. There are also references to wicks being purchased, um, perhaps for her chapel, also for her household. And also wax might have been used, of course, quite often um, for making seals, which are the little sort of discs used to authenticate documents in this period. So they functioned in a similar way to a modern signature or pin number today. Um, so wax was purchased in actually quite large quantities. Um, and she also engaged quite often in almsgiving as well, so in poor relief. Um, so the poor received sums of money from her almoner. Um, and she also fed paupers at the gates of her household, presumably as well. Um, on one occasion, she actually fed 800 poor people and this was something that was tremendously common in sort of great households in this period. So even King John had fed the poor and King Henry III and his wife, Eleanor Provence, regularly fed numbers of poor, sometimes very, very large numbers of poor from their separate households. So there are all sorts of actually interesting expenses. So the, the wax um, idea is interesting, isn't it? Because uh, obviously in the absence of electric lighting, um, uh, houses would have been dark. Um, so does that suggest that actually they were, they were making quite a big an effort to, to light the places and, uh, and, and keep things more illuminated? You kind of, you go around these houses and they turn the lights off and you sort of plunge into darkness and that's, you sort of think, well, that was the medieval experience. But maybe, maybe it was uh, a bit lighter think... than that. Yes, I think the sort of candles were used for lighting, also tallow candles as well, which must have been a little bit smelly. Um, if you go around some of the English heritage properties today where they recreate the smells, you sometimes get a sort of sense of there being a sort of tallow-like smell. Um, I think there was actually quite a lot of money spent on lighting, but I think it still would have been fairly dark in the evenings. And they would have been reliant on light from the fires. It must have been tremendously smoky as well. I mean, even today, if you light an open hearth with our other nice chimney places, you know, it still fills the room with a very smoky smell. Um, so, yes, I still think the castle would have been fairly, fairly sort of dark on the inside, even with all the candles. 
Okay. Now, uh, last thing before we just uh, wrap up and talk about the the, the broader political situation, uh, you mentioned some of the named people um, earlier, but there's one there's one person who uh, struck me as interesting. That's John uh, uh, Negra Noctis, um, who appears in the role, um, who sounds like an interesting character. And uh, what's what's the what's the Latin translation of that of that name? Well, he also appears actually as John Nenui and Nenoctis. And it's a reference to Black Knight, his surname. So he might have had a very dark shock of hair, or perhaps he just had a darker skin tone than other people in the household. Um, I just can't help wondering if he might even have been a Saracen who perhaps accompanied Earl Simon back when he'd been on crusade in the early 1240s. And we do know of Saracens in England in Henry III's reign. There was one held at Canterbury Castle, actually, um, I think in the 1230s or thereabouts. Anyway, one of my students found a reference to him. Um, And also there are some sort of references in the archaeological record um, for this period, which suggests actually it wasn't entirely unknown for men of African descent um, to have lived in England and to be buried in England. So an excavation of a Friar Tipswich in Suffolk um, uncovered the body of a black African, which I think is absolutely wonderful and gives us a sense of actually how medieval England was probably a bit more cosmopolitan and vibrant and culturally rich than we often recognise. Um, There are also some other lovely named people as well. So one of my favourite chaps, in addition to John, is also Dobby the Parker, um, who was actually Robert the Parker, who conveyed Eleanor de Montfort by night um, from Odium to Porchester to safety um, in June 1265. And he actually lived on to a great age. I can find him in the records for Edward I's reign, receiving a top-up of his wages at Odium in February 1290 due to his old age. So I just like to think of Dobby the Parker serving Eleanor at Odium and then remaining in post after the end of the Civil War and well into Edward's reign. Yeah, wow. What's what's a Parker? What's What does that... It's just someone from? who looked after the park, oh. so the Parkland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh well, there was there was me looking for an interesting answer there, but okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, but 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 not um, it, we're not getting a picture here of a massively sort of ethnically racially diverse uh, household, but maybe just some people who who were uh, from further away, perhaps. Yes, and perhaps some people from France as well. The Montforts have very close sort of family ties with France. And you do see messengers arriving from continental Europe um, through Dover quite regularly as well. Okay, right, brilliant. So we, we've had a, a really good sense of uh, of the social life of, of what's going on in this house, uh, this household, and, and and a bit more broadly. And clearly, uh, this role has got a lot to tell us there. So, um, so I'm sure our listeners have been fascinated by that. But you've uh, you've alluded to and mentioned at various points uh, that the broader political situation, as you said, 1265, pretty interesting year, Battle of Evesham, all sorts of things going on. So, um, just sum up: what, what does this role sort of? inform us bring us into this story at all what does it tell us that uh, that uh, would be useful for us to, to know about uh, what's going on uh, in the civil war at this point well it really sort of shows us what happens to the montfort family in 1265 so at the beginning of the role their fortunes were rising to riding tremendously high they ruled england essentially 
um, in Henry III's name. Eleanor was the leading woman in the country. The Queen was in exile in this period, trying to raise mercenary troops. So it was Eleanor who was the chief political hostess in England. And then with the Lord Edward's escape from Montforti in custody at the end of May, you start to see the Montfortian fortunes crumble in a very worrying way. So you really get a sense from this role that you don't get necessarily in other sources of the panic that Lord Edward's escape instilled in the Montfortians and also of the growing threat that he really posed to them as he gathered royalist forces, brought them to battle at Evesham and killed Earl Simon, Eleanor's husband and their eldest son, sent in a death squad even against them. And you see the impact of Evesham and all the monstrosities that sort of happened there, or the atrocities even, um, from Eleanor's household role. Because you see what happened to the family after Earl Simon's death. So in the role, Eleanor withdrew from eating in the Great Hall a week after Evesham at Dover when news reached her and the household went straight into mourning. And you get a growing sense of the pressure that they came under at Dover, really in a remarkable way. So you get a sense of sort of expenditure being cut right back because it just wasn't available. It was needed to pay crossbowmen and so on and so forth. You also get a sense of the royalists recovering their fortunes in the southeast of England because it became no longer safe for Eleanor and her family to transport food in easily to Dover. And they had to go out and acquire food by booty, by plunder from the neighbouring countryside. And so you get a sense really of the build-up to the final great siege of Dover, which sadly isn't included in the role because it cuts off just before that point. But there was a great siege of Dover in October 1265 by the Lord Edward, which culminated in Eleanor's surrender of the castle and her safe passage into exile. And what's lovely is that their royal letters that survive from this period that were issued by the Lord Edward, granting Eleanor's household members and members of the Dover garrison safe passage um, ahead of Eleanor's exile. Um, so all the folks that we see in the role, you can track their fortunes through royal letters and find out a bit about what happened to them afterwards. Um, some were very good and returned to the king's peace and were loyal subjects to Henry III henceforth. Others couldn't say goodbye to their former allegiances and can be found with really the, the remainders of the rebels in the last sieges elsewhere in the country of the Civil War. So the household role is just phenomenal because it tells us so much about 1265 and what happened at the heart of the collapsing baronial regime. So um, we had uh, Professor David Carpenter on the podcast uh, a little while ago talking about Henry III, his uh, Obviously, he's done a, a, a great big uh, biography, or at least part one of it. Part two still to come, uh, and uh, I, I, get, I think it's fair to say he's he's a little bit critical of Simon de Montfort. Um, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily think that um, he uh, he played a very good hand. What, Eleanor de Montfort was she was she did she play a good hand in this? Did she you know was she important in, as as a political player in this uh, in the story? She was very important, but I'm not sure I like her. I did write a biography of her in 2012. And one of the things that I struggled with, actually, is I don't think I like Simon de Montfort very much, and I don't think I like his wife very much either. She's quite a tough character to warm to. 
Um, she was a major political player, but perhaps more in the sort of Margaret Thatcher mould <laughs> um, than sort of, you know, I don't know, Mother Teresa mould. Um, she is quite a tough character to actually warm to. I don't necessarily like the couple's religious views. Um, they weren't terribly nice, the Jews, um, the Montforts. I think they were quite sort of hard line in some ways. Mm. Um, As was Henry III, though, surely. I mean, he was... He looked at yeah, well, Edward the first. Edward the first, I think, yes, particularly was worse actually. But um, but so she, I find her quite difficult to warm to if you apply modern values. Mm. Um, I do like having worked on her household roles, some of the people who served her, because um, they just strike me as quite ordinary folk going about their daily business. You know, so the messengers racing to and from remind me of modern day couriers you know, <laughs> um, and that sort of thing. The damsels who served her and the attention given to the children, that sort of thing. I like that in the role. I think she was quite a caring mother, actually, Countess Eleanor. So perhaps that's something we can say in her favour. So within her role during the final months in September, uh, we see her arranging for the safe passage of her youngest son, Richard, overseas to France, buying him new clothes, paying for mariners, um, to ensure he's safely sort of conveyed here and there and covering his expenses, as all good mothers should. Um, so she comes across as sort of quite a nice mother. So perhaps that's what we should remember her for, being a nice mother. OK. Well, that's tremendous. You've um, you've answered all, all my questions. You've given us a, a real insight into social history and the political history of uh, of the mid-13th century there. So thank you very much for that. Is there, is there, are there any... Uh, points we've missed, any any particular um, nuggets of information that you've not been able to impart that I haven't asked you about? No, not really. I just hope that people enjoy the book. Um, I've deliberately produced it with an English translation so it can be used really by everyone. Um, you know, for, I was using it for teaching when I was working on the translation with my students. Um, I hope it will be useful to reenactment groups, perhaps people like Regia Anglorum. And I hope that actually everyone who reads it would just sort of have a little think about how different and yet how similar medieval households were to our own. And it would just get people thinking, really. Hmm. Well, I would very much agree. And as I, I said at the start, um, it's not at all dry. It's a fascinating tome. And your uh, your introduction really does give a, a very good sense of, uh, of, of the life and times in this household in 1265. So, Professor Louise Wilkinson, Thank you very much for your time and the book, uh, The Household Role of Eleanor de Montfort, Counts of Leicester and Pembroke 1265, is available now um, uh, via the Pipe Roll Society, but I think also via um, Boyd Allen Brewer, isn't it? So, uh, yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. 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 OK, well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Professor Louise Wilkinson. If you want to listen to the podcast interview with Professor David Carpenter on Henry III from June 2020, which was mentioned in the conversation, you'll find that in our podcast archive on our website, historyextra.com. If you want to know more about medieval eating habits, you should check out the video lecture from Professor Chris Woolgar from our Medieval Life and Death Day back in May. You can also find that on our website. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash medieval hyphen food. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for a conversation about medieval queens.